Will you pray with me? Oh God, clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So there's a lot going on in the passage we just heard from the gospel. So I want to give you some background information that helped me understand it a little bit more and just wrap my head around it. This story is set in the temple. In its day and age, the temple in Jerusalem was believed by the Jewish world to be the literal house of God. It was believed that in the back of the temple, in the place called the Holiest of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sat, also dwelled the Lord. The temple was the cosmological center of the universe, and Jewish people from all over made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover, where they underwent various purification rituals to ensure that they could partake in the Passover celebration. Ritual purity was often achieved by bringing an animal offering to the temple, wherein the offering would be carried out by a priest. The animal needed to be unblemished, so it became a common practice for unblemished animals to be sold in the outer area of the temple, called the Court of the Gentiles, so that pilgrims didn't have to bring their own sacrificial animals and risk them getting blemished on the journey. That makes sense. Well, it makes sense for convenience, sure, and the merchants themselves could easily justify their presence by saying that, well, they're saving people money so that they don't have to pay twice for sacrificial animals by buying them ahead of the journey and then having them declared unfit for sacrifice once they arrived. However, as we learn from the first century Jewish, from first century Jewish historians such as Josephus, there was a fair bit of price gouging going on at the temple market. To put it in perspective, a pair of doves brought from the temple merchants, and this would be a sacrifice a woman would have to make in order to become ritually pure after giving birth, for example. A pair of doves bought from the temple merchants could cost over a week's wages. And doves bought outside the temple were frequently rejected for sacrifice. So that's what the animals were doing there. There were money changers in the market, because the Roman coins, they bared an image of the emperor who claimed to be divine. So those were considered idolatrous. They were not allowed to be used to pay the temple tax or to pay for sacrifice, animals for sacrifice. So people needed to be able to exchange their Roman coins for the shekels, which were allowed to be used. But the commission on these currency exchanges made the airport exchange kiosks look downright charitable. It's a system that is ostensibly set up for convenience to make life a little bit easier, but unfortunately is complicit in economic exploitation. And we'll get back to that in a little bit. It's also important to know that most scholars agree that the Gospel of John was written in the late first or early second century by a Jewish community that had been ostracized from the synagogue and who believed Jesus to be the Messiah. It's important to remember that this text is fundamentally a Jewish text. 
that the criticisms that it levels against the Jewish authorities, Jewish practices, or other Jewish communities are coming from within Judaism. This is a text that sees Jesus as a reformer of Judaism, not as the founder of a new religion entirely. And I think it's important to point this out because for centuries, this text has been used to bolster anti-Semitism within Christianity. And it's our responsibility as Christians to learn about our own religious heritage and the history of our texts so that we do not unwittingly repeat the wrongs committed by many of our religious foreparents. It's also important to know that the Gospel of John was written around the turn of the century after the destruction of the temple by the Romans in the year 70. Unlike the version we hear in the Gospel of Mark, which was written before the temple had been destroyed around the year 55. So as you remember, when the temple gets destroyed by the Romans, it sends the Jewish world into a cosmological crisis. Where can God go when God's house has been destroyed? By the time the Gospel of John is written, a shift has already begun to take place within the Jewish tradition. Instead of temple rituals, the practice of religion began to center around prayer services at synagogues. This was the beginning of rabbinic Judaism, which developed to encourage practices that could be done in the absence of the temple, and has become the mainstream form of Judaism up through our present day. So the John community, let's call them, they, they know by now that their religion has survived the destruction of the temple, and as they are a community that believes Jesus to be the Messiah, we can start to see why in this telling of the story, Jesus compares himself to the temple, implying that he is the dwelling place of God and foreshadowing his own death and resurrection. The audience for this text, they can find comfort in the belief that there is another temple in Jesus through which they can access God. But here in the 21st century, we're not in a cosmological crisis. There's a lot of crises going on, but not so much the destruction of the temple. As Christians, we've adopted the theology that God is present everywhere, or wherever two and three are gathered in Jesus' name. Our theology is that church is sacred because that is where we gather to do sacred things, to worship, to be the church, the body of Christ, the temple. This text can be a useful reminder when a church is in conflict about a change to the sanctuary. But I think that there's another message in this story that can also hit home for our modern day ears. So as we've learned, this story isn't depicting Jesus ridding the temple of Judaism. He's instead ridding the temple of the practices that are separating people from the heart of Judaism, from the history of God's promises and work with God's people, from the prophecy and power of the prophets, from the hope and renewal of the wisdom literature, from the transformative power of prayer. So if we believe God is everywhere, what are the practices that we need to cleanse that separate us from the heart of our tradition. So let's return to the scene of the crime, the court of the Gentiles, the temple marketplace. 
I don't think it's too far-fetched to interpret this story as a rebuke of the way that money and the desire for wealth can lead easily to immoral but not illegal practices. The temple markets are analogous in many ways to our modern market situation. The money changers, they were like the first bank. They were the first banks in first century Judea. There was an entire industry built around money changing that included commissions, currency speculation, fees, and a widespread acceptance that this was just the way it was. That the market was the best available system for getting the job done, and that while the system may be imperfect, everything that was going on in it was perfectly legal, so it's pretty naive and even dangerous in Jesus' case to fight it, right? Sound familiar? You know, it's also noteworthy, I think, that the word used for these market tables, trapezes, had only two meanings, as Stan Duncan, an economist and UCC pastor, points out. He explains that this word could mean a table used for reclined eating or a table used for financial transactions, which actually sometimes was translated as bank. According to the prophet Isaiah, God condemns the idolatry of setting up tables to Gad, or the name of the God of wealth. I think we have those tables too. We too worship the money God. It's part of our culture. We've all grown up learning the proper way to worship the money God, the sacrifices we need to make in order to receive our blessings, the commandments of the money God, well, they might read, Trust in the free market, your economic system, with all your heart and investments. Have no other systems besides capitalism. Remember the opening bell and keep it ringing. Honor thy Freedmans and Reagans. Thou shalt not kill the market with government regulation. Thou shalt not steal, as thou can achieve the same ends using loopholes. Thou shalt not covet because thou shalt not have need as thou shouldst be a good consumer and purchase the object of thy coveting as soon as possible. So we, the global 1%, we might feel like saying, hey, I do my share, I donate to charities, I volunteer, I recycle, I'm not greedy. Besides, I earned this paycheck with my hard work. Shouldn't I be able to do what I want with it? What's wrong with having a little luxury in my life? After all, as they say, you can't take it with you. And to us, worshiping the money god might just look like being financially prudent or engaging in the pursuit of happiness or just minding our own business, just trying to get by. Here we are making a pilgrimage to the temple, buying our doves and changing our currency, doing what we're supposed to do, not realizing that we're supporting an idolatrous economic infrastructure not realizing that worship of the money god is standing in the way of worshiping the true god. And that's what's so tricky about it. Economic exploitation, economic injustice, it doesn't come only in the form of a sweatshop owner or predatory lender. It's in the little things that we all take for granted. Many of us pay monthly into a 401k, a pension, a 403b, how many of us know exactly which companies we're essentially lending money to? Which businesses or business practices we are financially upholding with our investments? 
How many of us feel like we'd even have the time or the energy to go through our entire portfolio, investigating each and every holding to make sure that we're truly putting our money where our values lie? How many of us were excited to learn about Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods and the impending drop in prices? Thinking that at least finally we'd be able to buy affordable organic produce and support you know, fair trade and animal welfare. Forgetting or even just unaware of that expose a couple years back that exposed Amazon's grueling warehouse conditions and deplorable treatment of its employees. How many of us unquestioningly believed multinational, multi-billion dollar corporations when they claim that they simply can't afford to pay all their U.S. workers $15 an hour? I mean, well, they could, but then they'd have to have mass layoffs or reductions in hours. Not realizing that they still somehow managed to pay their European employees, where wage laws are more strict, they still managed to pay them the equivalent of $22 an hour without necessitating a reduction in workforce to fund it. How many of us upgrade to a new phone even when the old one still works? All of us, even atheists, worship the money god. We are all, at times, devotees of the money god, and perhaps that's why it's so hard to talk about it, even in progressive circles. I remember being surprised to learn just how much of Martin Luther King's message, just how much of his agenda was economic in nature. I wonder why, and then I recall Archbishop Elder Kamara, how he famously said, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why the poor have no food, they call me a communist. He was on to something. Both Jesus and Dr. King were going beyond the uncomfortable but socially acceptable practice of table fellowship or sharing a meal with folks from all socioeconomic backgrounds. They were going from that to confronting the institutional system that creates and entrenches unequal and unjust socioeconomic boundaries in the first place. And this wasn't good news for the upper middle class, who likely saw Jesus as an agitator, a radical, Someone who is causing trouble just for trouble's sake, looking for attention. I mean, why does he need to get so violent and disruptive? Why can't he advocate for change in a less intrusive way, like a petition or something? But we do well to remember Dr. King's words. It's important for the liberal to see that the oppressed person who agitates for his rights is not the creator of tension. He merely brings out the hidden tension that is already alive. Maybe it's that hidden tension that makes it so hard for us to talk about money. If there's anything I learned about tension growing up, it's that sometimes the only way to release it is to surface it, to acknowledge it and not try and push it down. It's kind of like a, a slinky you know, the spring, the way the more you try and compress it, the harder it pushes back until suddenly, boing, there go the temple tables. So what can we do to surface the tension? How can we overturn the tables of the money god that we've taken for granted in our own lives? Well, we could boycott products and companies that, product, that profit off of exploitation, we can find ways to advocate for tax justice, whether it's as simple as calling our representative or as involved as running for office ourselves. We can give up a daily or weekly Starbucks run and donate the money we save to a charity, a local shelter. We can and we do give to the church offering. 
We can give a zero-interest loan to a friend or a community member in need. We can even mark a little cross on our credit cards and debit cards, a reminder to ask ourselves every time we make a purchase, is this in line with my values? Now, these are just some practical suggestions. I'm sure you can think of dozens more. But what's important is that we start to get comfortable being uncomfortable, that we start to get comfortable being uncomfortable with the role that we play in upholding the worship of the money god, that we open our eyes to the possibility that the boring financial practices of our everyday lives might be part of a larger system of exploitation and oppression that we have been taught is just the way that things are. I don't think it's practical for any of us to suddenly decide to live off the financial grid, to completely and entirely withdraw from engaging with the temple market. But what I do think is possible is to begin to carry around the question, where do I fit in this system? Where does God fit in this system? Who or what do I worship? How can I surface the tension? Will you pray with me once more? Oh God, clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen.